Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is Adelina Chalmers, who I've known for two or three years now from her work uh, in Cambridge and London and across the UK, working with tech companies and startups to help their engineers and managers better communicate with one another. Adelina is also one of the hosts of a very popular podcast for uh, startups and scale-ups called Scaling, Failing, Prevailing, which I was on in the past, but this is not the topic that we're going to cover today. Um, we might touch on this, but today we're actually going to talk about COVID-19 and Adelina's experience with COVID-19. So Adelina had COVID-19 about eight weeks ago and uh, is still recovering today. And so we're going to talk about what it's like to experience it from her perspective and have a little bit of a firsthand view. So Adelina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Patrick, and thank you for asking me to speak about ve this very, very important topic. Great. So just to start off, I, I was hoping maybe we could start with your firsthand experience. So in the media and online, people keep talking about whether this is like the flu, is it, is it a regular flu, is it worse? Um, I was wondering if we could just talk about what it was like for you. Ser was, was it serious, mild? What kind of um, issues or complications did you have? Well, first off, I'd like to say that I think that uh, COVID-19 was missold to me as the flu as well before I got it. I had uh, a moderate to severe case of COVID-19, which means that I was breathless even when sitting down. Um, and um, it was it was an absolute roller coaster ride. Um, I was very lucky because I have a couple of friends who are doctors. Uh, one was more experienced with COVID than the other. Um, and one was from abroad, and they told me to count the days. So the moment symptoms start, you start counting the days. You know, you hear people online going, day one, day two, day nine, day ten. That's the reason they do that, because um, initially, at least, symptoms were quite linear in the sense of you could identify almost to the day what symptoms you should be having today if you were a, a more... Really? So what was case. that in the beginning? Yeah, so, um, so for me... I had a fever for, for the first three days. I was red like a lobster. And um, fever was going on for about eight hours a day for three days. It wasn't painful or anything like that, but it was just insanely hot. You felt like you were burning up from the inside out. And then my friend who's a doctor said to me, if on day six you still have fever, regardless of how long it goes, uh, you need to um, get checked by the doctors because from day... If you get fever from day eight, seven, eight, nine, uh, it means that you could have developed pneumonia and you could end up in intensive care within 48 hours. And right. I think, you know, without having to speak for Boris Johnson himself, I think what I heard happened to him through the grapevine, not through the professional media, is that his doctor did tell him to go and have himself checked out on day seven. But he apparently is an alcoholic and didn't want to do that and left it too late until day 10, when then he ended up in intensive care. Right. Did you end up in intensive care, or you were able to pick it out sooner? No, luckily. So what happened with me is that I had fever for the first um, three, four days, about seven, eight hours a day. And then I felt my lungs being hollow. I just felt them. When I went for a walk, I remember feeling, just getting a bit breathless and heart palpitations. And I thought, mm, maybe this is it. Because at the time, I wasn't quite sure what was going on. Because I had been in the sun. I initially thought I had a sunstroke. And, um, and then on, um, on day 
four, I believe. In the morning, I was fine. And by four o'clock in the afternoon, I couldn't breathe anymore. It was that quick. It was literally, I couldn't, I couldn't really? breathe anymore. Like, literally, I felt like I was choking. Initially, I felt like I was choking when I was talking to somebody. I remember I was on the phone with a friend at the time, and I was telling her how fine I feel, and I'm going to be one of these people who rides it out. Oh, maybe it's not even COVID. I remember saying to her, it's just fine. And literally, within minutes, as the conversation progressed with her, because it was like an hour conversation, by the end of the conversation, I just felt like I was choking. And that was, I remember, on day four. And then day five, I just couldn't breathe um, properly. If I went to the toilet, it felt like I was running a marathon. And it was right. if I was sitting down completely still and not watched a movie that excited me in any way at all, then I could breathe okay. But any excitement, you know, standing up, uh, watching something that makes me laugh, watching something that makes me cry, any movement from ground zero, essentially you were choking. It's just, it's like, <gasps> couldn't quite get enough air in. And how long did that last? That, um, so three days, four days, half, four and a half days of fever or three and a half days. And then how long of yeah. So on, on day six, yeah, it, on day six, it got really bad. Um, on day six, my heart uh, rate doubled. And I know this because one of my friends who's an engineer gave me a uh, pulse oximeter. And this is actually one of the tips I'd like to share with the people listening. Um, please, if you can, buy a pulse oximeter. On Amazon, there's one for like £22. Uh, look at the ones with the most reviews, I would say. Pulse oximeters um, tell you your heart rate, but they also tell you how much oxygen you have in your bloodstream. And when you can't breathe or you feel you can't breathe, that's really important. Because if that oxygen right. level goes under, well, my doctor friend said under 93. Um, some people said under 92. But anyway, if it's under 95, you need to keep a close eye on it. Speak and definitely, to someone, yeah. Yes, because that means your lung capacity is going down and it could go down really quickly, even worse. What was the, this was eight weeks ago now, the testing and the the general preparedness is, is better now, but it's still not great. What was it like then? Did you, were you referred to a, um, you know, anyone who could help you figure out what was going on, get testing, anything like that? No, so it's a very good question. Everybody thought I had been tested, but I haven't even now. So uh, on day six, my breathing got so bad, we had to call the paramedics out. Because um, I, I thought I couldn't breathe anymore. Interestingly, I had kept a chart of my um, pulse oximeter readings throughout the days from day one when it started. But on this, when, when I couldn't breathe anymore, I just ignored everything. I ignored the pulse oximeter and called the the ambulance because I just couldn't breathe anymore. I just felt like I was choking. And yeah. and it, you know they do say that if you feel like you're choking, you have to call. Um, I called one 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 initially, but they put me on hold and they said. I can't get you to see someone soon enough. You have to hang up and call again. <laughs> I was just like, when you, you can't think anymore, I didn't even understand what you were saying. Like, it was just surreal. Um, an ambulance came out, and um, they they listened to my lungs, literally, like, on one side of my back and the other side, and they said, oh, you're fine, you're fine. You just need to calm down. You just uh, had an episode, a breathing episode, but you're fine. Your lungs are fine. 
And then I found out that essentially at that time, paramedics didn't have enough information or training to know what to do about it. So they just said to me, they just left me at home. They didn't take me in for checkups and they should have apparently taken me in for checkups, but it's not their fault. They just didn't know at the time. You know, it's apparently my pulse oximeter said that my blood oxygenation was fine at the time. So it, it was, I wasn't tested. They, they barely had any equipment for people as well. I felt so sorry for them. Uh, they only had like a face mask on and like one of the plastic aprons on and that was it. Um, right. and when a week, so then the weird thing that happened was that on day 10, I literally at 5 PM, I remember perfectly day 10, I had like a button switch and it was like five minutes ago, I couldn't breathe when I spoke and now I feel absolutely fine. And I literally went for a walk the next day. And then the day after that, I was getting even better. So 48 hours, just like switch. And that was it. I was better. And I thought, Oh, this is it. Perfect. And then In the clear, I beat it. Yeah. Yes. And then literally 48 hours later, later to the hour, I started having fever again. I started getting worse again. Uh, by which point on day 14, my doctor sent me to a hospital, referred me to hospital. And that's when I ended up on the COVID ward in hospital. And they didn't test right. me then either because they said they didn't have tests. Uh, they said that they would only test if I was um, like a person with cancer or something like that. And that's the only kind of people they would test at the time because they were, they, they were saying, you sound like you have COVID and that's it. We can't do any, can't say any more. Right. The <laughs> test is not going to tell us anything we don't already know. Yeah. No. And, and they tested lots of things. They tested my breathing. They tested my oxygen levels, my heart rate. Um, and that's where they discovered the, the urine tests. And that's when they discovered that my kidneys had especially started um, getting an infection. And I had blood in my urine and other a list of many, many other things that I couldn't read. <laughs> I didn't understand what they meant. Did you experience anything like loss of smell or any of the other um, somewhat unexpected things that are, that are now starting to pop up? Uh, I had... A bit of loss of smell, but to be honest with you, I couldn't eat most of the day. So I think yeah. I, I kind of remember feeling that nothing is tasty or interesting. So probably that was the the loss of taste and smell. <laughs> um, the other thing that I had was very vivid dreams. And I it was interesting because I, be, I was extremely calm. I mean, to be honest, I had to be because if you weren't calm, you were going to be wouldn't be able to breathe literally. Um, right. And I, um, I'm trying to think if there was, uh, but I remember heart palpitations I got as well. So when I started feeling better again, uh, my heart would just beat uncontrollably um, for half an hour to an hour, two hours sometimes. And then that would go away. And that's just me sitting on the sofa being as calm as I humanly can, you know, meditating and my heart was just beating out of my chest. So that's day 10. Now we're, we're on day for, 56. For, <laughs> uh, yes, yeah. yeah. It's nothing like so, that, right? So, yeah, well, so day 14, I ended up in hospital. And in hospital, they gave me a, a, a horse-sized dose of antibiotics, uh, which cleared the kidney infection, right. luckily. Um, so, and then I started getting better again. I haven't had any, any fever since. But, again, right. uh, like you say, day 56. So... I had uh, waves 
exactly like the 48-hour wave that I told you about. I After I got, the, got out of hospital, got the antibiotics, slowly started feeling better. Um, and then <laughs> um, literally you would think you're getting better because you, you can breathe now. Um, you know, when you stand up or when you go up the stairs um, to the to your bedroom or whatever, and you think, "Oh, I'm 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 getting better," but it's not linear. You you just have this kind of sliding scale where you feel better and better and better. To when you reach a point and you think, "I'm ninety percent there. I'm ninety nine percent there. I feel I could work. I remember five hours a day, and I did an hour's walk. I was like, "Wow, I'm getting back to normal levels, close enough anyway." And then literally the next day, collapse, can't walk for longer than five minutes, can't work at all, or a maximum of two hours. It's yeah, it's not linear at all. Do you feel like um, it, it's, it's something in your in your lungs or body that is just going to take some time to repair itself? Is that? Yes. Um, so in the first few days, it felt like my lungs were hollow. Um, then it felt like my eyes were made of... Uh, my my lungs were made of of iron. They felt heavier and heavier, and they felt shrinking. In the first week, my lungs felt like they were shrinking as days went on. Um, now it just feels that they're heavy again, but not heavy in the same way. It's so hard to explain. Some of they feel cloudy, uh, and and I feel like I yeah. can't quite get enough oxygen still. Um, if I go for a walk, I. This is, this is the thing that shocked me the most. Um, you think you're better because yesterday you could walk for an hour. So today you go for another walk and after five minutes you realize you have to turn back because you, you're, you're not going to make it to the end of the road. And it's this lack of consistency that frightens me, to be honest. I tell people I'm fine and then yes. tomorrow I'm not fine again. And I feel like I'm continuously lying to people. Because right. <laughs> like, you were fine two hours ago. Yeah, not anymore. <laughs> and that's that's very odd yeah well and the, and the general lack of predictability of of who who has a moderate case who has a severe case who has a mild case i think that's one of the the challenging parts as well i mean would you if if you were to predict from the beginning you'd have no way of knowing whether you'd be perfectly mild and go right through it or whether you'd have an eight-week saga right and that's mm -hmm. one of the scary parts does your experience with that give you any perspective on how we should be treating this crisis for the next, um, you know, coming months, years, because I, th I think a lot of people having not experienced it will say, I'd like to just get it, get it over with and, and get out into society. Um, I, I don't know. Would you, w would you take that stance if you were given the chance to run it over again? Or would you, uh, <laughs> oh, that's a different? good question. So this is, this is the thing. This is why I said at the beginning that this has been missold misbranded as from my perspective it's been misbranded as oh it's a viral thing it's a flu-like symptoms you know most people are fine um the the fact that you do not know and, and fitness is not a part of it nobody there's no way to predict at the moment who's going to be fine and who isn't there's likelihoods that people will cancel will be worse off than other people but even people who i mean i i know two people who got it and they used to run triathlons and now, nine weeks later, they're still at the same stage I'm at. These are not 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 unfit yeah. people, you know. Um, yeah. I I when I to be honest with you, before I got it, 
I was I was washing my hands because I have OCD anyway, so I'm obsessed with cleaning, to be honest, anyway. But I before I got it, I, I kind of thought, well, if I get it, it's not going to be a big deal. You know, I kind of, I'll, I'll get immunity, get over and done with. And to be honest with you, I was kind of not upset at the thought of getting it, but I wasn't actively trying to get it, if that makes sense. I was protecting myself and I was washing yes. my hands. I was doing everything that I was told to do, but I was not kind of worried at the thought of getting it. It wasn't something that was going... Oh my God, if yeah. I do what you know, I wasn't doing active research into what would it would be like. And then when I got it, uh, the first few days I was like, yeah, it's a breeze, it's a flu, it's a this. And then literally the thing that scared me was that when my doctor friend said to me, um, because I my doctor friends, to be honest, encouraged me to call the NHS because I was like, you know, we have this feeling at the moment that we can't burden the NHS. And you probably saw all these articles about people yes. not accessing the services or kind of paramedics or people turning people away and going, oh, it's fine, you're fine, you'll be fine. Um, it was that feeling that I don't want to disturb them. You know, they have bigger, better cases than me. And my friend was a doctor when she saw that I got fever on day uh, 10, 11, whenever after the 48 hours that I thought I was fine, yeah, on day 11, 12, yeah. When she said, when she heard that I had fever then, she said to me, this is bad. You need to get yourself checked out. You have secondary infections you're not aware of. If she hadn't said that, I think I would have waited longer and longer. And the first doctor I spoke to at my surgery, she said, oh, you'll be fine. You're fine. Your breathing sounds fine on the phone. You're fine. Um, Call us if you get worse. And then I called him the following day when my breathing got worse again. And that's when the different doctor said, yeah, I think you need to be assessed. Um, because it's concerning that it's been right. so long and it's getting worse rather than better. So I wouldn't recommend it as a try it out and see how it goes for you kind of situation. And I would say um, people <clears throat> need to be very, very careful with it because the problem is that you can, from the moment you're well to the moment you're unwell, it's so fast, you don't even know where, where it hits you. This is the thing that I, I would say to be very, very wary about. Yeah, and I guess a related question that I had to that is when when you were affected, there were far fewer people that had been affected in the UK, less access to testing, many more unknowns. For for people today, um, do you have any advice on or or recommendations on how to go about it? It sounds like counting the days and being you know being very uh, astute about if I've had a fever for three days, I need to. Um, you know, knock down, knock down the door of my on the phone. Yeah, probably yeah. not in person, <laughs> Five but of days, my. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so, what what would you yeah. what would you recommend? Um, how, how should people be thinking about yeah. this if they're concerned about it today? That's a good question. I I would like to I like to always take a scientific approach as much as I can. I'm not a medical doctor, so take all of this with a pinch of salt. Yeah. But from my own personal research and this whole conversation is from a personal perspective. I'm not a medical doctor. Uh, and from all the conversations I had with doctors, scientists, friends, because I'm in that sort of space, so I'm very lucky and privileged to have access to those sorts of people. Um, the first thing I would say is that right now, um, wherever you want to get it online, um, get a pulse oximeter. Uh, a cheap one uh, that I got was something called Contec. So it was really cheap, 22 quid or something like that. And it gives you that peace of mind. So from day one, the moment you start having yep. fever, also take your pulse um, 
three times a day, take your um, take a, a reading on the pulse oximeter and write it down, literally in your diary, what time you took it and what the reading was. Blood pressure, um, sorry, uh, heartbeats per minute, which is what the pulse oximeter tells you, and the oxygen level. If it's under 95, I would call a doctor anyway. If it's under 93, you need to call an ambulance. That's kind of the rule of thumb my doctor friend told me. The other thing I would do is buy a thermometer. Um, I saw that I, I just got one mine from Amazon just now. Uh, not that I'm encouraging people to buy from Amazon, to be honest, but that's where I found the one that I, I can, uh, I could get quickly enough. Um, I got a thermometer now because when the, um, the paramedics came, they asked me what my temperature had been for the last few days and I hadn't had a thermometer, only a pulse oximeter. So I couldn't tell them. So again, it was much harder for them to predict what's going on because they couldn't see that chart. They couldn't see the map of day one. This is some, what fever she had day two. This is, you know, so it would have been much more helpful, but it was helpful for, to them that I told them I had temperature from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And, you know, so giving them a bit of an overview of what's been going on and make a note of your symptoms. You know, so if you, start having fever at 10 a.m. As soon as you realize you have fever, just make a note of that. And because that will help doctors decide much quicker the stage you're at. And if I knew this, I mean, I only started making real notes on day three because the first two days I wasn't quite sure this is it, you know. And that's the thing that people don't realize is that you kind of start getting some symptoms, but you're not quite sure. And I, um, and that's why sometimes people are further along than they think because you just hit them. That's why I think that, Saturday, it hit me within, you know, 10 a.m. I was fine, 4 p.m. I couldn't breathe anymore. You know, it was that sort of difference. Um, so having, um, taking data and keeping a track of your symptoms and making a note of your symptoms, if God forbid it gets worse, you can tell doctors that, you know, you can say to them, I've had fever for three days. Right. You know, this is the fever. It was at, you know, went up and down or the same consistent fever. It helps them understand because the other thing that, that my doctor friend said, was that if fever comes and goes through the day, that's not good either. If fever is consistent for big chunks, right. that's much better because it means that the body is fighting, you know, turning on the fire to burn the virus essentially. But if it's on and off, on and off, on and off, yeah. it's not a good sign, she said, and that you need to keep a very close eye on what's happening next. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think, yeah, looking at other people's stories – to see if there's any, for me, that helps a lot to see if there's any resemblance. I calmed down a lot when I, when I was taking my pulse oximeter readings and going, okay, I'm only 97. It's okay. My blood, you know, my blood oxygen levels are 97. They're not 95. They're not 92. So I'm okay. Um, and when I read this professor, um, which I can send you the link if you like, um, for the, for, for the people listening to the podcast, they can read the article. It's quite short. There's a professor of um, uh, contagious diseases, I think, and he got COVID as well eight weeks ago as well. And he was saying how week seven, week eight, he's still struggling and he's this kind of up and down curve as well. So that reading other people's stories kind of helps a little bit understand what's happening to you as well. I think I might have seen you share this one. Yeah. Um, is this one that you shared on LinkedIn? That's right. Um, I'm trying to remember the person's name as well. Mm. I can, I can find the link for that one. We can right. include it in the description. Mm. I think it's super, it's super important to hear we're inundated with statistics and sometimes it's useful to hear 
individual perspectives on it because it makes it um, a little bit more real than just hearing the, you know, the depressing numbers every day that don't really have any human stories attached to them. Mm. Do you, do you on the tracking side of things, have you started or did you in the past use any of the myriad of tracking apps that have been created that allow you to measure your symptoms or, or any of those sorts of things? No, I hadn't done it before. That's what I'm saying. This kind of converted me a little bit. Um, because before yeah. I didn't quite see the point. I'm quite a healthy person in general. Uh, but when my doctor friend told me, um, I think she told me on day three to keep a track of my symptoms because they will help her make a decision uh, to suggest various things. Then that's when I realized how it helps doctors make decisions. She showed me actually the charts of the way yep. the protocols they have, at least in other countries in the UK, there was no protocol at the time uh, of how to deal with right. it. And how the data that the more data the patient can give them, the faster and easier it is for them to make a decision that takes you on down the right clinical path. Right. That's good. That's very good advice. And I think people have uh, a, one of the big themes of this podcast is actually talking to a lot of parents with children with rare disorders, people who themselves are affected. And, and this is um, COVID is a very unique class of it's it's no longer exactly a rare disease and it's one of the most uh well studied diseases in history relative to the amount of time it's been around but still you have to be armed with your own information right the the health professionals are working hard out there and they're doing the best they can but they don't have they don't have the full context you do um and so the what you can really do to help them is to keep that information and keep it in an organized way right absolutely and kind of knowing so when when paramedics came to our house they were quite impressed because i showed them my phone <laughs> with all the patterns of 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 data and, and kind of what the readings had been and they were quite like oh gosh this is you know this is more than we expected impressed yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also to be honest you gain a little bit of professional respect at that point as well because they don't see you as this person who just has a bit of fever right now or you know trying to guess what's happening right. to you yeah that makes total sense as as a as a re maybe a related uh it's just popped to mind and and it's sort of relevant to your professional role in advising companies do how do you think the next few months are going to play out in terms of so people are going to continue to get it and as easing happens in the UK and elsewhere i think there're going to be a lot of questions from employers on can you ask your employees to come back knowing that that's going to increase their risk of um, of getting it? Uh, what, what do you have any, have you formed any thoughts on that of whether, whether companies have a responsibility in this government guidelines aside to, um, you know, to think about how they, how they handle this situation? Gosh, you're full of good questions, Patrick. <laughs> um, and I, I don't know if I'm qualified to answer all of them, but what I would say is this. Um, one of the key things that I've seen uh, employers seem to have an expectation that even if their staff catch COVID, they should be okay within two weeks and come back within two weeks. Well, if I was employed anywhere, I would be off for two months at least. Um, so I would be, right. first of all, this is the thing that I would like them to take into account as an employer. Imagine if, not the worst case scenario, imagine they get the moderate, moderate to severe symptoms. Um which is quite a good chunk of people if you look at that, that chart that I shared as well from WHO, then your company will have, will have these people missing in action for at least two months. 
and they'll come back being not great either by that point, to be honest. Um, so first of all, as an employer, you have to think about the phased return to work. I mean, I couldn't um, two weeks ago. So week six, I could work an hour to a day maximum. Week seven, I could work three hours a day maximum. Now week eight, I can work maximum four hours, but then the following day, I can only do two. If I've done four hours today, right. I can only do two tomorrow. So I would really look at the phase return to work. So that's the first thing I would, I would say. Um, try and be realistic because this can hit your staff a lot harder than you think. And some staff will carry it and not, right. not know anything about it, as you, we've seen as well. Um, but in terms of returning to work, I mean, I was, if I was employing people, um, obviously when you can work remotely, which I'm very lucky, my work can be done remotely, a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it. I would obviously still keep people working remotely as much as possible. Um, and I would, I would, I know in the UK, there's a talk about should we wear masks? Should we not wear masks? I know they're compulsory in other countries. You get a fine apparently if you go on the street without a mask. Um, I was asked to wear a mask when I left the hospital. Um, but I was told after a couple of weeks, I don't need to anymore. I would say a mask doesn't protect the person wearing the mask, as you know, protects the people around them. Yeah. Um, so I would say that yeah. if I was an employer, I would ask everybody to wear a mask. Um, maybe see if you can get, you know, transparent masks, you know, where those who are still protecting you, but also people can see your face through them. Uh, because in, in hospital, it was very hard to tell who's talking to me and what exactly are they saying? Because they were behind various screens. Right. And if I was deaf, I would have really struggled. And <laughs> and I wasn't deaf, and I still struggled to understand what they, <laughs> what they were saying sometimes um, through all the yeah. protective equipment. Absolutely. Do do you worry personally at all about um, reinfection and those sorts of things as well? My understanding is they haven't really worked out whether I, – I think the assumption is that you should be immune and, and I having not have it am – and probably not immune, but uh, I don't know that it's, a, it's, it's, I think it's a little bit of an open question. Did they talk to you about that at all? Um, did they tell you to stay home and, and just in case, or did they say, get, you know, you, you're more or less protected if you want to be out and about? They didn't say anything about that, but they were worried about me infecting, infecting other people. So to give you an example, course, um, yeah. when I left the hospital, they wouldn't let me go home with a taxi. Um, it would only be a member of my family had to pick me up or someone else that I knew for a fact that had had COVID as much as possible, or right. I had to wait for an ambulance to take me home. And those are the only options I had. My boyfriend was very ill at the time with COVID himself. He had massive headaches, so he couldn't, he dropped me off at the hospital, but barely made it home himself. So I had, luckily my ex-husband was still a very close friend. Uh, he was feeling better that day. He had one of his good days. So luckily he was able to pick me up from hospital and take me home. Um, but that was the only concern they had. Um, in terms of immunity, they didn't say anything because, again, I think it was so early. And even now, I think people don't know. However, I have hope yeah. that you might get immunity at least for a few months or a year because they're looking at doing tests with plasma of people who've recovered to help people who are not recovering. Right. And to me, that's an indicator. It may be a wrong uh, idea. I'm not a medical professional again. 
but to me, that's an indicator that potentially there's, there's, there's something in there that says that you could potentially be immune, at least to some strands of it. Yeah, the, um, the, the variety of different approaches to treat it are quite amazing. I've heard they're doing some of the, my understanding is basically your, your plasma, the antibodies can help fight somebody else's COVID. Um, they're also thinking about these challenge trials that I imagine you might have a view on, which is where you um, effectively infect people, you vaccinate them and then infect them with it. It's a more accelerated form of um, clinical trial for a vaccine because you don't wait for wait for people to acquire it and measure, but you actually in- administer it directly. Mm. Um, so I think we're going to have a lot of ethical debates as well around... Um, how do we how do we conduct these things safely and and appropriately? Have you considered donating plasma or been asked or you probably want to wait until you're recovered fully fully to do that? I would guess. Well, so the day I thought I was getting better, <laughs> and one of my friends who who works on that site at Edinburgh uh, sent me the link because she knew I had it had it, and I was like, "Yay, I'm fine." Um, the day I thought I was better four weeks ago. I uh, I applied to be one of the people who donates plasma already and they rejected me because I had been abroad in France with work um, in less than four months. So apparently one of the conditions was that if you've been abroad in the last four months, you couldn't, you couldn't donate plasma. So I, I couldn't do it. I didn't qualify, unfortunately. And to be honest with you now, I'm not well enough to do it. I don't think I'm there yet either. Um, I was fooled yeah. to think that I was at the time, but um, yeah. Well, you can only trust what your what your body tells you, right? And um, and if it's if it's giving you mixed signals, then what can you do? <laughs> exactly, mixed signals. That's the best way I could describe it. It's like uh, you're well. Oh no, you're not. You're well. No, you're not. And I, I I actually said to people, I feel like I'm a fake. Like I feel like I'm lying to you. I told you this morning I'm fine, and now three hours later I just want to sleep and nothing else. Uh, and right. I, everybody knows I'm an energetic, go-getting social person. And I've just become this person just sits on the sofa or in bed 15 hours a day. That's ridiculous. No, I can I can only imagine. I mean, it, so, it sounds clear to me that it's something wholly different than the flu. Um, few, few people get the flu and end up with eight weeks of um, back and forth. Absolutely. And doctors, some doctors told me it could be 12 weeks uh, before I feel starting to feel human again consistently. So, right. And I had a really bad flu two years ago, and it's nothing like that. You know, with flu, you had um, fever, and you had dizziness and drowsiness and all these things, and you couldn't see light and all that. But you, and you had kind of you coughed and all that, but you, you didn't have this problem that you couldn't, st- you couldn't breathe properly. You know, like, it's just, it, it's a feeling I've never had before. And I had really bad chest infections and bronchitis and all of that. So just to close out here, I know mm. I'm conscious of your time. I told you I'd keep it to 30 minutes okay. and we've uh, blasted right through it. And I, I know you've got a, a lot on. Um, I, I was wondering if we could just close out by whether you have any uh, viewpoint on what we could be doing from a society government, maybe even science perspective that we aren't doing. Is Is there something that's, because the people who are making, frankly, the people who are making the decisions, with the exception of Boris Johnson, very few of them have been personally affected by it. So um, the the experience is different. Is there something that you feel like is blindingly obvious that we should be doing or or thinking about that that just isn't part of the discourse? Or if you had a 
magic wand you would um you'd you'd institute this overnight well if i had a magic wand i would love without real health repercussions i would love to give the experience or the feeling the knowledge of the experience that i have now to people who think it's just a flu i mean that's the first thing i would do if i had a right. magic wand um people underestimate and it's very hard to understand how bad this can be for you or your family you know my boyfriend was fine but i wasn't um he worries even now about me i mean yesterday to give you an honest answer i went for a walk with him for an hour i nearly passed out in the street um on the way back several times uh, i had to sit down on every bench on the way home and have a half an hour break so the walk took us four hours in the end or something to actually get back because I couldn't get back. Um, and obviously you can't right. get a taxi. You can't get a lift from anybody else, you know, because <laughs> you're not meant to be sharing those sort of things. Um, so one of the things I would say is that think not just about yourself. If you think, oh, I'll be fine. But think about your mother, your brother, your grandma, I don't know, anyone else that you might be affecting. I think the thing that people don't realize you know and i hear some people go oh you're stopping me from doing living my life the problem i think people don't realize is that we are impacting everyone else's life it's not just your own but it's everyone else's and i don't think that's understood deeply enough by people who haven't had it yet and haven't suffered from it um and i i don't have any magic bullet but that's the key thing i would say that if we were to have the empathy of what it's like to have it and not have it critical case, which is basically ICU, intensive care unit, but actually have a, a moderate to severe case like I had. Um, <laughs> believe me, you would change your mind. I changed my mind before I got it. I was quite lax about it yeah. in the sense of, well, I'm upset if I get it. And now I'm like, this is not the flu. This has been missold. <laughs> yeah, that, I, th I think that's a, I, that's probably the most important thing rather than any specific policy change or something like that. If we can inject some empathy through through the system, then probably people will, uh, that, that will trickle down into specific policies. Yeah, absolutely. Well, great. I just want to say thank you. Thanks so much for taking the time to do it. Uh, if uh, I know you've been sharing some of your experiences on uh, Twitter, LinkedIn. Is, is there somewhere people can follow you that's not Facebook and super personal? Um, can people follow you on LinkedIn to see your updates and those sorts of things? Yeah, absolutely. Connect with me on LinkedIn as well, um, on LinkedIn and Twitter. I, I'm very open about this. Um, I want people to know what it's like. This is why I've been extremely open about my personal experience uh, because I think it, people need to understand this is not a joke. This is not a drill. Yeah, very much not a drill. Maybe that could be the title of the podcast. <laughs> this is not a drill. We'll see. <laughs> yes. Okay, well, thanks so much. I, I really appreciate it, and I hope you I hope you're recovery continues well it seems like uh it is it is you're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel hopefully and it's getting better if not day by day at least week by week it's uh, making progress yeah, the overall trajectory is better <laughs> i would say the overall trajectory is just right. day by day it's extremely fluctuating immensely well perfect thanks so much i really appreciate you taking the time to do this i think people appreciate hearing your perspective thank you so much and and if anybody wants to follow me it's adelina Chalmers on LinkedIn and on Twitter as well, or The Geek Whisperer. If you Google Adelina Chalmers, The Geek Whisperer, you shall find me. 